upcoming on our um, first episode of Larry the Golf Guy for 2023. We speak to Jim Smith Jr. of the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Um, the Philadelphia Cricket Club is quite a um, historic property um, on two campuses, 45 golf holes, lots of racket sports, and um, really quite a place. And, and Jim has been there as director of golf for, um, I think, a little over 16 years. So we trace his path in golf leading to the Cricket Club and talk about what life is like there for him. Um, he is also COO and, I think, general manager of the Flower Town campus, which is where uh, the two 18-hole courses are located. So uh, we talked to him about um, how he runs his operations and uh, what the membership's like and um, what his day-to-day life is like there. And, and we get into sort of how he measures quality of his staff and their performance. We get into net promoter ratings uh, towards the back half of this um, podcast. And I think you'll see, uh, as you listen to it, why he's won the um, Philadelphia PGA section uh, Strasbourg War three times, just the third time just announced this last week for 2022, which is an award for mentoring. And, and um, it really comes through how much he cares about his people and, and, and how he encourages them. So fun hour talking to Jim and hope you enjoy it um, upcoming on uh, this episode of Larry the Golf Guy. Welcome to uh, not only another edition of the Golf Guy, but our inaugural edition for 2023 um, as we get the year started. And I am really pleased to be able to welcome to our show today, Jim Smith Jr. from uh, the Philadelphia Cricket Club uh, in, in the Philly area. Jim, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Um, so uh, let's maybe just kind of go back to the beginning um, for folks and give folks a little context. Um, you've um, kind of generally kept mostly in the same um, area, southeastern Pennsylvania. I grew up in Jenkintown, um, north of Philly. Um, maybe chat uh, to get us started, kind of how you were first introduced to golf. Uh, my dad was a really good player back in the day, and uh, but he was a public links golfer. Not that that's a good or a bad thing. That's where he played his golf. And he introduced me to the game probably when I was maybe eight or nine. Um, but what was interesting was he took me to the driving range a lot, but he never took me onto the golf course until he mm. felt like I was ready to hit the ball well enough to enjoy a round of golf. So I probably spent five years hitting balls at a driving range with him before he ever let me on a golf course. So I think my first experience going on the golf course was when I was about 13 or 14. And I think the worst I've, and I'm, and by no means am I a good player at all, but I'm also not a terrible player. And because I hit so many balls on the range, I think the worst I've ever probably shot is 95 just because I was ready, you know, when I stepped on it. So he was the guy that introduced me to it. And I just, it, it's been a lifelong love affair. Awesome. Um, did you play at all? And uh, did you do much junior golf at all or play in high school or anything like that? No, no, I was, you know, football, basketball, baseball player that took up all the summers. Um, I didn't get into golf until my freshman year in college. 
Um, I started a painting business with a college or a high school friend of mine, uh, our senior year of high school. And so we did a really, you know, we had a really good business in the summers and the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college was when I really got the bug. And because I owned my own business with my buddy, it gave me the flexibility to kind of come and go as I pleased. So I played a little bit more then. And then I really got the bug. And then for the next couple summers, I basically would go out, do all the estimates, hire all the guys. I'd go in in the morning to two different jobs, tell them what to do. I'd go play golf all day and then come back and check on them at the end of the day. And I got to do that. And that was, you know, kind of when I got, you know, head over heels for lack of a better term. Awesome. That, that's a great way to set up a work uh, situation for sure. Um so where were you playing at just various public courses in the, in, I, I mean, I know you, I think you started Villanova, you ended up graduating from Temple. So you've been in the Philly area. Did you, were they mostly public courses or where were you hanging your hat golf wise? Yeah, there were some courses in the area, um, Lime Kiln Golf Club, Hidden Springs, which is now Commonwealth, which is a private club. But the place that I really hung my hat at was a place called Twining Valley. And uh, a, a, the pro there was a guy named Will Riley and Will took a a shine to me. Um, Will probably is five years older than me. We've become lifelong friends, but Mm. he was my first introduction to like what a golf pro was and what they did. Mm -hmm. And he just always treated me better than I deserved. He always gave me time when I wanted time. He would occasionally take a couple shekels out of my pocket in a chipping contest. Um, (laughs) But I think he knew when he met me that I, that there was something about golf that I loved and he kind of polished it um, to make it shine a little bit more. So I, I still tell people to this day, you know, he's probably the primary reason why I do what I do. Got it. So you're graduate. So you're doing that, playing a lot of golf there, graduate from Temple finance and economics and kind of just talk me through kind of career wise. At what point at this time are you thinking, Hey, I want to not only I, you know, I love this game and you've got this relationship with this guy, but how did you come to the uh, thought process of, gee, I think I'm going to try to make a career out of this. I took a sales job. I was selling closed circuit television systems and trying to convince people in North and West Philadelphia that they needed to spend 200 bucks a month to install my system to protect (laughs) them from being murdered and being robbed. Um, It didn't take long for that to get old. And, uh, my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend, we've been together for a very long time. She had a good job. And, you know, as she's often want to do in very few words, she's like, what do you love? I said, I love golf. And she's like, well, want to try to figure out doing something in golf. And um, I was driving by, a, you know, a club and just I pulled in. Uh, it was Commonwealth, ironically enough, the club that had turned, uh, you know, hidden spring into the private club. Yeah, there was a pro there named Terry Mattern, and I just walked in off the street and said, "What do I got to do?" And he spent an hour with me. And again, like keep in mind, you know, I got this guy Will Riley who I'm idolizing, and then I walk in and a complete stranger, Terry Mattern, treats me like I'm, you know, I've been his friend for 20 years, and I'm like, man, these PGA golf pros are pretty good people. Like I want to do this, and. He, they gave me some advice and I applied to a couple jobs and boom, I landed a job. Awesome. Awesome. 
I, I love these stories. Your your buddy David Reisner had a similar thing where like he was driving around looking at clubs and drove into Ridgewood. But um, that's awesome. Um, so is the Abington Club kind of where your first job was, if I have that right? Or how did what was the first one in golf? It was not. My first job was at Riverton Country Club, which is right over the river in Riverton, New Jersey. Um, okay. I was, I was in, so I was an assistant there for a year. I was living in Jenkintown back then, as I do now. and the Abingdon Club was actually my gym because it's a nine-hole golf course plus um, a fitness facility. And I was walking from the fitness facility to my car, and the guy who was the pro at the time, a guy named Greg Costa, walked out. He knew I was a golf professional, and he said, hey, Jimmy, can I talk to you for a second? And he dropped the bomb on me that he had been diagnosed with cancer oh, and boy. that he was going oh, to wow. give up his job. Wow. Now, at this point, I'm a year into the business. I'm 23 years old. I had become a little bit of a friend to Greg. And Greg said, I want to recommend you for my job. Can I do that? Wow. So this is the first of many times where, like, I just have been in the right place at the right time. And he went in to Dan Duffy, who was the owner of the club, and said, I got this young guy I think would do a great job. My phone rings the next day. Dan calls me, says, why don't you come in for an interview? And that's how I ended up at the Abington Club. Awesome. Wow, that's interesting. What a story. Um, so you're there for four or five years. Um, and then I think, if, if I remember right, you go to the Talamore Country Club from there. Is that the next stop for you? Yes, yes. So I had a, there was a, Talamore's a housing community and some people who were members of the Abington Club bought homes there. Again, like one of those sort of weird situations where my phone rings. It's the owner of Talamore, and he says, I have an opening at my club. You've been recommended to me by a couple people, and these are the same people that were the Abingdon Club members that bought homes. Yeah. Would you like to interview for the job? And I was like, sure, when? He said, how about right now? I said, all right, I'll be there in half an hour. So <laughs> I drove up, and I, 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 I thought I was going to sit in his office, and he said, come on, we're going to go back, jump in your car. We're going to drive back to the Abington club and you're going to sell me a membership. Interesting. Yeah. So, so we drive back down to the Abington club. I tour him as if he's a prospective member. We go through the whole rigmarole. We drive back up to town where he asked me a couple other questions and he says, you want the job? Wow. And I was like, yeah, I do. And subsequently he told me that he knew he was going to hire me the minute he got in my car. Because I'm not like, I'm not like a neat freak in the sense that like I'm a cleanliness freak, but I'm an organization freak. Yeah. So like anywhere you walk into my house, you walk into my office, everything's where it should be. I was going to say, like, I, I should let, judge it up. I should let people know. So we're doing this by video, even though I only post the audio and I can, I can attest to the fact as I'm looking at Jim's office and, and the golf balls and the pig and the, and the, the planner on the desk, everything is very organized. So I will confirm that from my vision, but go ahead. <laughs> so long story short, as he said, I, I knew that you were organized and detail oriented based on how your car looked and I would have bought a membership from you. So I know that you can communicate well and, and that's what I need. And again, like just there, you know, number two in my career, right place, right time. Somebody makes a phone call. Boom. I got a new job. Awesome. And I, I think you're there for, for 10 years. And, and one thing that I noticed I wanted to ask you about is 
at least if I'm if I'm remembering right, I think I saw something that listed you as not just director of golf but GM. So, were your duties beyond just golf there at all, or um, with that title? So, so yeah. So I I started out as a director of golf. A guy named Jeff Weiss was the GM. Two years into that job, Jeff came into my office and told me that he was going to leave the GM role to open up his own business. And he wanted to recommend me to, to Bob Levy, who was the owner, um, you know, to take the GM job. And, and I said, absolutely. I, I, even though I knew nothing about food and beverage, um, I felt like I had, you know, enough intelligence and enough common sense to be able to learn what I didn't know. Honestly, though, more importantly, it, there was a little bit of, um, self-preservation in that decision because I knew if I took the job, I controlled my own destiny as opposed to right. the owner hiring somebody else who maybe didn't right. like me. So, you know, fortuitously, it, it it allowed me a lot of opportunity to grow. And Bob, who was the owner of Talamore, Bob Levy, I mean, at, at that time, I was when, when I got the job originally, I was 28. When I was the GM, I was 30. And so I was relatively young to have so much responsibility. And, and, and as a credit, you know, Bob let me make a lot of mistakes and the members there let me make a lot of mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. And um, I'll never be able to thank him and the members at Talamore enough for being patient with me. Awesome. That is, that is great. Um, that's fortunate to be in a position where people allow you to do that. That is how you learn. And that that's great. Um, so, we come to just kind of continuing on the timeline. We come to 2006 and Philadelphia Cricket Club, um, you know, which has so much history. Um, oldest country club, I think, 1854. Um, talking about a place where we had U.S. Opens in 1907, 1910. Talking about a place where Willie Anderson was the pro at one point. Um, you know. Uh, not a, everyone talks, of course, about Hogan and 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 you know the other four Nicholas and stuff, but the other four-time U.S. Open winner and Bobby Jones, I guess we should put in that list. But um, so lots of history. Um, uh, talk. How did you get that wonderful opportunity to go over to Philadelphia Cricket Club? Here we go, right place, right time, number three. <laughs> um, so my director of instruction at Talmore who's a guy named John Spina, who's my director of instruction here at Cricket. John, John has a well-deserved reputation as being one of the best teachers in Philadelphia. And Talamore was only about five miles away from Cricket. John's reputation was such that a lot of members from other clubs were coming to Talamore to see him. Mm -hmm. And as luck would have it, um, several of the most influential Cricket Club members in the search process were John's students. So mm -hmm. they had been to the club. They had seen sort of our operation, you know, they'd met me peripherally, but you know, they were really there to see John. Um, but again, when, when the cricket club job opened, um, a couple of those folks, you know, called me up and said, Hey, this job's opening up. We think you'd be a good candidate for it. So as I like to tell this, my, my team, you know, as we're, as I'm talking to some of the younger guys, as they develop their careers, right. and I think I'm a living example of this. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily a great resume or great in interviewing skills. Um, you know, looking the part, looking like a great golf. Those are things that are important, but your real resume is what you do every day. And mm -hmm. if you do a great job every day and you, and relationships matter to you and you treat people the right way and you say, thank you, you do the basics the right way. These kinds of opportunities will pop up. So I like to think that, 
you know, the guys from cricket who thought I would be a good candidate thought so because they had a good experience when they came to the club. I didn't know, right? right? I had no idea that that job was going to open. Right. And as I tell my guys, like, if you have to treat everybody a certain way because you never know when the next guy through the door is the selection chair at a local club who knows that the golf professionals retire in at the end of the year. Right, right. Absolutely. No, that 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 is great advice. Um, let's talk a little bit about cricket. Um, and, you know, I, I, I touched on it a little bit in terms of the history, but it's kind of a unique place. It's got um, maybe talk about it. it's got two different campuses. Um, and uh, I think at Chestnut Hill, the original one, Flower Town, you've got, you know, 45 holes of golf, lots of tennis you know, lawn tennis, pickleball platform, lots, lots of stuff going on. Um, what is it like um, to be at a property like that? And and particularly with all the history it, that it has? Well, you know, first of all, from a history standpoint, it's, it's, you feel very privileged to be able to come to this place and work every day. A place that oozes the history that this place oozes is a very cool place to work at. And it just elevates the club. It's a very recognizable name because of its age. Um, it's a big place to your point, you know, the original campus, which is in Chestnut Hill was, um, you know, where the original golf course was, and it's where all of our sporting facilities are. I'm about five miles away in, at our flower town campus, which is just outside the city limits. And, um, you know, back in the day after those U S opens had been held, um, some talk started about wanting to potentially have the original plans at flower Town actually were for 36 holes of golf, mm. but that plan originated because, uh, the expansion of the city into the suburbs, essentially at that time, they decided that they, they might want to start building some more homes. Mm-hmm. On what is, you know, what was the old golf course? So they needed to right. find a new site. And, um, so, you know, what it's turned into now is, is a, a dual campus. Um, there's not many clubs in America that have, you know, a golf facility in the Burbs and the city club. Um, it's, it's, it's unique in that when you're out at flower town where I'm located, it's, it's really a very golf centric experience. And then when you're in the chestnut Hill, um, location, it has world-class squash, world-class paddle. We're the first private club in the United States to install Padel. You might be familiar with Padel cause it's in California. That's, it's starting to take, take root. Right. Um, it's just it's just a spectacular, but it's a sports campus as opposed to golf isn't the focus there as much as it is at Flower Town. And it's, you know, it's big, it's complicated, it's active. It's got an unbelievably great membership. Um, it's the kind of place where if you if you need action, if you need to always be busy, which I'm that type of person, <laughs> um, you couldn't answer, you couldn't answer a better place. I would not do very well at a, you know, sleepy 18 hole golf course that does 9000 rounds of golf. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. So do you, and, and, and I hear you, I mean, your camp where you're sitting now is, 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 is largely all golf. And the other one is, you know, as you say, lots of the, all the various sporting facilities, in addition to the nine hole course, um, do you spend much time over there? Do you go back and forth or, or at all, or with there, cause there is some golf over there or, or, or how does that work? So in season, I'm down there a few times a week, um, in part just to kind of keep an eye and support, keep an eye on and support, you know, the, the folks that handle our nine hole golf course, uh, because of my responsibilities at the club being beyond golf. Um, we have a lot of our meetings down there. We have committee meetings down there. 
Um, but in all, I mean, if I was to say, you know, how's my time split, I'd say 90% of my time is at the Flowertown campus and 10 is at the St. Martin's campus. And and you kind of just alluded to it. I think, you know, your title of uh, these days is I, I saw Flowertown GM and COO in addition to director of golf. So maybe just talk about that. So similar maybe to what happened at Talamore. I mean, your your uh, your responsibilities go beyond golf, it sounds like. They do. Um, so I started here in 06 um, and the GM at the time, Nick Smith, was great. Um, Nick ended up leaving and taking the job at Austin uh, Country Club where the world match play. Yeah, yeah, sure, uh, in Texas, yeah, yeah. And his replacement was a guy named Tim Musel. And Tim came in, and he came in from Waikagil. He did a great job, and he is now the COO GM in Olympic. And he chose to leave. He left in February of 2018. And because uh, we were entering the start of the golf season, the leadership at that time was a little nervous about maybe embarking on a search for a general manager leading into the golf season because golf's such a big part of the club. And because I had had a background as a general manager at Talamore, they asked me if I would do the interim GM role and then we would do the search in the fall. And I said, you know, of course I would. And then I enlisted the aid of Dan Mearsman, who's our director of grounds and, and Linda Cozy, who's our CFO. And the three of us sort of managed the club collaboratively along with six of our department heads in 2018. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, the leadership came to us and said, you know, this model is working pretty good. What are your thoughts? And we had obviously talked about this possibility, right? Sure, like, what if sure. we do this? Um, and, 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 you know, the, the number one reason why we did it by far was because it, it at country clubs, oftentimes, I, I don't, I, maybe I shouldn't generalize this way, but, but the, the, the experience at a country club is contingent on the frontline employees. Yeah. It's not contingent on me. It's the bartenders, the outside services folks, the, you know, for lack of a better term, the folks that are considered on the lower end of the totem pole, right? right. And right. like to me, that's always been backwards. That's like, why shouldn't a dishwasher at a country club or why shouldn't somebody in the outside services area be able to feed their family easily and help put their child through college? Why is that reserved for the director of golf, the director of grounds. Right. So Linda, Dan, and I were all like-minded. And basically what we said was, we will continue doing this and we won't take any additional salary to do it. We want to take that money and we want to flip the the, the, the uh, pyramid upside down and we want to plow all the money that had been given to the GM and AGM and give that to the frontline staff. We want to make those jobs better we want to make our middle manager jobs better because the three of us knew that if we enhanced the happiness and the quality of life for our, our frontline employees, our lives would be easier. Sure. And and they supported it 100% and have been that way ever since. That's awesome. I love it. Um, I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, I'm at Brentwood Country Club. We just are wrapping up a GM search. I've been on the, I'm on the board and I'm the search committee and we've been thinking about a lot of these things and, and, you know, and always thinking about the membership experience and what a great idea. I mean, talk about a way to enhance the membership experience by plowing that back to those folks who are, they are the touch points for the member experience. You're, you're hundred percent right. That that's awesome. Um, so, um, so with that additional, so, so, so you continued on with that and it sounds like that, that 
organizational relationship and your responsibilities. So um, are you kind of beyond golf then? You're sort of, um, I mean, you're Flowertown GM. Are you kind of just sort of running that property? Is is I'm just trying to get a sense of what your responsibilities are beyond golf today. Well, I have the title Flowertown GM just because you have to have somebody who's accountable. So basically, when it comes to the golf experience and the food and beverage experience at the Flowertown campus, that's my responsibility. Got it. Dan Mearson, our director of grounds, is also on the Flowertown campus. So he takes care of the golf courses. I don't worry about that. And then Linda, who's the third member of, we call it an employee executive committee, EEC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Linda's the third member of that triumvirate. Linda runs the St. Martin's campus. So my role basically is food and beverage at Flower Town, golf experience on both campuses. And then I'm, I'm really have the, the three things I'm really heavily involved in club wide are strategy, mm-hmm. membership and employee happiness. Those three things are sort of my areas that the three of us decided I should focus on. Um, makes sense. And, and um, you know, I was going to get to this, but it just it's a good jumping off point. You talk about employee happiness and the stuff we've just been talking about. Um, you've obviously been a tremendous mentor on the golf side to lots of folks. Um, I mean, I know you're, um, and I just saw the other day, I think now the third time you've won the Strasbaugh Award um, for the Philadelphia section, which is all about mentoring. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that and kind of how you view that and, and why you've been obviously so successful as a, a mentor to your golf folks. Um, you know, I, I, like, I, I don't think it's that complicated, honestly. I, the, the best way I could describe it is I, I, I and Dan and Linda subscribe to the Richard Branson School of Management, which is keep your employees happy and, and they'll keep your members and your customers happy. So 10 out of 10 times, if somebody gave me the choice, work with the employee or work with the member to improve the quality, I'll go with the employee because I know they'll take care of the member if I take care of them. Mm-hmm. And I just have always believed that. And, you know, when people ask me like, what, what's my main role? My main role is to make sure that the employees are happy, literally. Like, and and people um, derive happiness different ways, right? You can't just throw a blanket on top of all the employees and say, if you throw them all more money, they're going to be happier because that's not the case. Right. It's getting to know each person. It's treating each person with respect. It's understanding what's important to each person. And trying to, to manage to those areas while still being fair and equitable to everybody so that it doesn't look like somebody's getting special treatment. So, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, it's, it's, it's always humbling. Like when you get an award from the section or somebody recognizes you, um, you know, for things that you've done, but like in the end you, you do those things cause they're the right things to do. And it feels good to do the right things. Right. I, I know that's really simple, but like, I would I would much rather end my career and have somebody who worked with me go, yeah, he was a really great guy to work with than for them to say the opposite. Um, <laughs> sure. So no, that 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 makes perfect sense. Um let me talk. I, I, I just the last thing I want to do is give a short trip to the wonderful golf that's uh at PCC. Um and talk a little bit about uh the two courses where you're hanging your hat at Flower Town. 
Um, and I am going to, I'm sure, butcher how to pronounce this, but um, the Tillinghast course, I'm going to go with it that, and I'll let you pronounce it correctly. The Tillinghast course is, um, you know, uh, the, the, the more historical one, um, you know, built by Tillinghast Corsa. You know, Philadelphia has, and, and we people who've just listened to the show know this because I've had so many different Philly guys on from um, Jeff Kitty and Scott Nye and um, such a rich history in golf architecture, um, you know, including George Thomas, who, you know, built a lot of the things that were, I'm out of here with Riviera and LA and, um, and Tillinghast is certainly part of that. Um, and that was um, his home course, right? Uh, where you are now. Um, and I'll let you pronounce it because I'm going to butcher it. But that that's his uh, course, right? It's the Wissicken course, yeah. And, and um, you know, the club is unique in a couple of different ways. One is it's the only club in the world to have opened the golf course in three different centuries. Wow. So the St. Martin's course opened in 1895. Wissicken opened in 1922 and Militia Hill opened in 2002. There's no other facility in the world that can make that claim. Another claim, nobody can claim to be Tilly's home course except us, but you're right. going to find this really interesting. And this is a very uh, unique, this goes back to the history of the club. At the same time that Tillinghast was a member, George Thomas was a member. Oh, wow. He won our club championship twice. And George Crump was a member. Wow. Pine Valley, Minor right? Pine yeah. Valley. yeah. They were all members at the same time. And if you go into our Tillinghast room, which is where we have our, all of our plaques, that room as it exists today existed in the early 1900s, and I would argue that the birth of the Philadelphia School of Architecture in some ways occurred in that room because it was in that room that they brought guys like William Flynn. Yeah. All other guys in there, um, they were all here. And I, and I wish I had been a fly on the wall back in, you know, <laughs> totally. Oh, well, yeah, you and, you and me both, right? Wow. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, so the golf courses are, you know, the nine hole St. Martin's golf course is off the charts good. It's not a little pushover. Wissahickon clearly is, you know, the creme de la creme of, of our courses. It's the one that's ranked the highest. It's the one that gets the most notoriety when we have a big a big tournament. That's where we host it typically. And then Militia Hill is another awesome golf course. At one point, it was ranked in the top 25 in, in uh, Pennsylvania by Golf Digest. It's a Hurst wow. and Fry. Wow, yeah. Um, so, you, you know, most most people would tell you that, you know, in the Philadelphia area, in terms of the quantity and quality of facilities, there's nothing better than this place. There's there's better, you know, people could, would argue that Marion's got a better course or Pine Valley or Aronimic, whatever. Right, right. But nobody has nobody has 45 holes of golf within 20 miles of the city. And uh, we're lucky that that's the case. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the Wissahickon course, now that I know how to pronounce it correctly, I know you had a significant Keith Foster restoration. Um, so you were there, I think that was what, 2013, 14. So you, you, you saw the before you obviously have seen the after what was that like? Um, and, um, and, 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 as, and also as part of that, I'm curious, kind of the member reaction, because that's a, you know, when you close a course like that, um, to do that significant a restoration, that's a, you know, not always a fun thing for the members and you know it's great when they do it because they put it in and usually what comes out the other side is is worth the time but maybe talk about what that process was like and and how you viewed it well so the golf course you know it, we closed it um right after memorial day 
uh, no, excuse me, right after the U.S. Open in 2013, and then we reopened at Memorial Day in 2014. And, um, you know, to your point, it was, it was, it was the, the whole process of deciding to do a restoration and then going through the closure is certainly not one that's going to be supported by 100% of the members. Right, right. So, you know, there, there was a very large contingent of members that loved it because, if, if it sounds like you're an architecture geek like me, I am. Right? I, am. Kind of in, <laughs> I plead guilty. Yes, sir. <laughs> but if you had come to, if you had looked at the Whitsick and Golf Course pre-restoration, you would have gone, "Man, is it good?" But could it, it could be so much better? I mean, the overgrowth of the trees, the you know, the bunkers were in the wrong place. And long story short, is you could see that it needed some polish. Yeah. And the restoration, Keith Foster. Um, did everything and more. And, you know, when we reopened it, you know, every, everybody that was in favor of it before was like, wow, it's awesome. And everybody that wasn't in favor of it basically disappeared because grudgingly or not, they, it was, it would have been hard to argue that the end product wasn't significantly better than before. Right. Right. Um, well, that's great. And I've, I've seen the pictures of what it looks like now and it looks Awesome. Um, and it's been, you know, talking about architecture, I mean, you know, back then Keith Foster was doing that. Obviously, Gil Hans, who's, you know, another person from your neck of the woods, obviously is kind of the leading guy. And you look, you know, whether it's Southern Hills, we had Carrie Cosby on a few months ago, or um, I mean, God, Gil's been everywhere, right? You know, up, you know, the the country club, we had Brendan Walsh on, I mean, but all over the place, but all these, uh, and of course, out here, LA Country Club, where we're going to have the US Open. Um, coming up in June. I mean, these restorations, you know, when you look at the people, you're able to look at the old pictures and what people, what architects, skilled architects can do now with restorations of these classic courses is so neat, right? Because these were just, they were, uh, that was a golden age of architecture and really in many ways, starting in Philadelphia, as you pointed out, the names you ticked off. And um, it's really wonderful to sort of see these things restored, Right. Um, and you see the strategy and the angles and stuff that the great architects put in. And um, and you're right. I mean, trees, I, I guess, probably, you know, it, it's it's your state, not your town. But going to Oakmont is probably the original one that took out all the trees um, and and started the trend now of, you know, and, and it's it not only opens up the vistas, but, you know, better for the turf and everything. So um, the whole restoration movement uh, if we want to call it that is has been really neat to see for folks who like me and sounds like you but find golf architecture pretty neat and so that's cool that you guys were a, a part of that you know what and I, I also think that um you know we for example when we were discussing this project and we were discussing tree removal we got to you know put oakmont out in front of folks and say well if right. they did it enough for them it should be good enough for us right Right. And then when we did it, you know, that helped some local clubs that maybe were on the fence. Sure. To get people over the fence because they said, well, if cricket, if it's good enough for cricket, is it good enough for us? Right. The other thing I think that, and, and I, I was listening to your, um, you know, Epstein at, at Congo's, a, oh, yeah, a good yeah. buddy of mine. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Listen to, I listened to your podcast with him the other day and he was talking about Andrew Green. And right. I think, I think one of the things, if there's a lesson to be learned, it's that these great clubs that make these decisions to hire these guys and to let them do the work that they're going to do. And I'm going to talk about Marion in a second, but yeah, 
what they've done is they've acknowledged that somebody out there knows better than they do. These guys, we, you and I think we know a lot about golf course architecture. <laughs> and if we spent two hours with Keith Foster, we'd feel stupid. Yeah, I, probably two <laughs> minutes for me, but I, I take your point 100%. <laughs> These guys are artists and they have vision that very few people have. And it's the clubs that go out and hire these experts and trust them and let them, you know, do the things that they think need to be done. And these guys aren't doing it, um, you know, willy nilly. It's not like they say to a committee after they're hired, get out of my face. They're right. communicating with the people all the time. Of course. They're talking yeah. about the why, right, behind it. And you were mentioning like cricket doing something like this. And I think about, and, and you know, the challenge, right, that that presents to the members closing the golf course. Right, right. Scott and I, who's also a good friend of mine, yeah. I mean, think about Marion is one of the crown jewels of American golf, if not Absolutely. worldwide golf. Absolutely. Right. And their leaders who deserve so much credit decided that as good as it was, it could be better. Right. And that was risky. Yeah. To do that. Right. And I think they've been proven right. Yeah. I agree. Because with that too. of who they hired yeah. and how they did it. So like to me, you know, it, it's if you if you can if you hire the best people and you let them do what they do best, you're going to end up way better than you were before. Hundred percent agree, hundred percent, and, and well taken. I I I I totally agree. Um, yeah, I and I mean just to underline what you're saying. I mean, you can imagine. I would feel pressure if I was in a decision making position at a Marion. Because it is such a crown jewel. It is so historic. It is so iconic. And it's like a little bit like touching the Mona Lisa. Um, and um, I would I would have been nervous. And uh, but you're right. You know, they hired the right guy. It was it was they had the courage and it's even better. Uh, so 100 percent, 100 percent agree with all that. That's awesome. Um, let me talk a little bit. I t uh, just be, besides all the stuff that you do at cricket. Um, Lots of involvement in the Philadelphia PGA section, it sounds like, um, which is a great section, one of the great PGA sections in the country, not surprisingly, with all the courses that we were taking off that are in your area. So you were on the executive committee, it looked like for about 10 years, president for a couple of years. Um, what was that experience like for you in the PGA section generally in Philly? Generally, it was great. I mean, it was nice to be involved um, locally because... I mean, the, nationally, PGA is a gigantic organization, so trying to change the direction of that ship is difficult. But locally, you know, you can have what you hope is going to be a positive impact, and the people that you're impacting are your friends and your peers. Um, and a real quick story, like, like all the other things in my career, I lucked into it in the sense that I had been asked to, to get involved, and at the time soon after I got involved, the director of section affairs, Jay Gallo, um, decided that he needed to resign. He actually suffered an injury and, oh, and for, okay. for a variety of reasons, he had to give up his post. I happened to be there at the right t place, right time. So all of a sudden I got accelerated. I didn't earn any, any, um, I didn't earn my position in leadership. It was sort of like, yo dude, you're nearest, you're ready. Let's go. Um, <laughs> It's nice. It's really nice to be. And, and I'm still involved in the sense that, like, I love to be involved in the seminars. I still I hope I'm I can serve as a sounding board for current 
uh, leaders and Jeff Surrett, who, in my opinion, is the best executive director of all the executive directors, you know, that run sections. Um, but the, the, the moral of the story is, is that if I get involved in something, I, I want to make sure that I can see the, the results of it. Right. Um, not, and that's not saying that there's anything wrong with getting involved with national things. Uh, I just get more reward out of doing it locally. And that's what that offered me. Totally makes sense. Um, do you get a chance to play much in, uh, I'm mean, actually I was going to ask you generally about that, but you know, whether it's section events or generally, I mean, such a big job you have at cricket. Um, and I'm sure just, you know, running the operations, you know, golf and otherwise, uh, eat up a lot of time. Are you able to play much, um, uh, and keep your game in, in order a little bit? My most recent past president called me this weekend. And for some reason he said, how many rounds of golf do you think you play a year? And I, in my head, I was like, I don't know, maybe 70. And he's like, get out of here. You play like a hundred. And I was like, stop, I do not. Um, the moral of the story is I get, I honestly, I can play whenever I want. I probably play. I think we, uh, he and I agreed basically that I think I probably average about 80 or 90 rounds a year. Um, I get my golf in bulk bits. I do a lot of traveling with the members. Yeah. So, so let's I, talk I about do. that because that's a big part. You know, when I've talked to you and Jason, other, your colleagues, you know, playing with the members is, you know, an important part of the job and doing trips. I mean, Carrie Cosby, every, almost everyone talked about that. Tell, maybe let's talk about a little bit because that sounds like that's been a neat part of your uh, life at cricket. Now there, there's hundreds of great things about the job. One of the top three is the fact that my members love to travel and they view me delivering travel experiences as a value add. So in general, I'm on the road probably somewhere around six or seven weeks a year taking members to different places. I wow. do. That's awesome. Do a men's trip. I'll do a men's trip, a mixed trip, two women's trips, one in the summer, one in the winter, and then a variety of smaller things every year. And then like every five years, I do a gigantic trip where anybody can go and we go to, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, like I'm going to Dubai in a month for two weeks. I've done South Africa, Tasmania, Australia, Hawaii. Um, the me- I love it. I love organizing these things. I love that the members love the fact that I tell them this is how much it costs. This is where to be. And I take care of the rest. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I go on these trips, you know, they're, those, they're golf intensive trips, obviously like in Dubai, we're playing nine rounds of golf in 14 days. Oh my so, gosh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I think like of the, of that, of my, my, my play basically is probably split you know, 50% of my play is on golf trips with members and the other 50% is either with members at the club or playing in pro-ams. I really don't ever play for myself, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm a big believer. Like if I'm going to go play golf on a Saturday morning at the club, which I try to do as much as I can, I always try to make sure I play with people that I haven't played with before. We have 700 full golf memberships. Wow. I've been here 17 years, I'd be willing to bet that I've played 18 holes of golf with at least 500 of those people. Wow. That's awesome. That is great. Uh, Cause where else are you going to get time to, you know, where else can you get four hours with, you know, the CEO of a fortune 500 company and you're just out there having fun for four hours, getting to know each other. I mean, absolutely. Why wouldn't I want to do that? <laughs> that makes perfect sense. And that, that is fantastic. I love it. Do you do any, I don't know if you do any teaching at all anymore, or I'm sure you have a staff that people focus on teaching. Is that any part of what you do or not so much? 
Now, I'm so glad you asked me that question, and I hope Epstein listens to this, because I heard how impressed you were when he told you he had five instructors. <laughs> we had seven. There wow, you go, okay. Jason. Wow, there you go. You <laughs> one-upped him. <laughs> I, wow, don't, um, I, don't, wow. I don't do any. I haven't charged for a lesson since I've been a cricket. Um, but we have a really big instruction program because we have a lot of people that love their golf. And as I like to tell my main job, you know, in addition to keeping members happy or uh, staff happy, I make sure the right people are in the right places doing the right things at the right time. So from an instruction standpoint, with all the different things that we offer, you know, there's enough here for seven guys to make a living, six guys and a woman to make a living doing it. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that shows the, I mean, you said over 700 golf members. I mean, that that's awesome. Shows the enthusiasm. Um, before I forget, cause I don't want to uh, finish up without touching on this. Um, the purple cow analogy. Um, <laughs> I, I, you, you got you, you got to explain that, and maybe the, your your PCCQ system of feedback, which I thought was fantastic, um, and I hadn't wasn't hadn't been familiar with that book before. But maybe you could just talk about what that's like. Well, so the purple cow thing came up. Um, somebody told me this many many years ago, and I share this with you know. Typically, it's it's like our interns or younger members or younger people that I'm talking to about it, but. I say to people, if I took you to the farm, you know, there's a farm across the street from where we are. Mm -hmm. If I took you over to that farm today and there was 300 cows there and I asked you to point at a cow, you could easily point at a cow. You'd pick it out, right? If I took you back there in a month and those 300 cows were out in the, would you be able to tell me which cow you pointed at a month before? Yeah. Probably not, right? No, not a chance. Right. If, If the cow was purple, would you be able to point at it? Right. For sure. So what are you doing to be purple is what, and, and how are you distinguishing yourself from other people? You know, take a young golf professional, young, eager, smart male golf professionals are a dime a dozen between ages 25 or 22 and 25. Meaning there's, there's plenty of them. Right. Right. How is, how is one of those guys going to stand out from everybody else? How are they going to be purple? There's no right answer to that, but if they don't figure out how to be, differentiate themselves from everybody else, they're just going to be a cow for the rest of their life that nobody's going to notice. Right. It might be working at a great club. Working at Marion for Scott and I automatically makes you purple. Working at the country club of Brookline for Brendan Walsh, you're automatically purple because only a few people get to do that. Right. 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 If you're a great player. Maybe you uh, raise a million dollars for some charity. Whatever it is, you better figure out how to be purple. You, you know, and I did a little bit of research on you. I think you're the first person I've ever spoken to who has degrees from Harvard and Stanford. <laughs> now, whether, what, like, and you may or may not disagree. The bottom line is, is that if nobody knows who you are and your resume comes in and it's got Harvard and Stanford on it, you're purple. Yeah, yeah. No, I right? take your point. Yeah, I take your point. So that's that's what that's all about. And it's just trying to educate and support our team wanting to be purple. And then, you know, the, the feedback thing, this PCCQ thing, I think I, so you're familiar with Net Promoter, the Net Promoter system? So I actually am not. I saw that's what you, that is in reference to, but I, but I actually am not familiar with it at all. You've, you've done it before. Big companies, um, when they send out a survey that says, hey, on, you know, uh, there's 10 stars, rate us one to 10, yeah. right? It's a very simple feedback mechanism 
for companies to gather grades basically on how well they're doing. And the net promoter system basically is, and I hope this doesn't bore you, but this is no, no, I'm really interested in it. Go ahead, please. So somebody that rates you a nine or a 10 is what's called a promoter. It means they love what you do and they are promoting you, whether they even realize it or not. When your name comes up at the bar, they say, Larry's a great guy. Somebody that rates you a seven or an eight is a passive. They like some stuff about you, but there's some stuff that's not great. You know, Larry's an awesome guy, but he didn't return my phone call last week. Right. Whatever. Okay. And if you get rated six or lower, you're, you're a detractor. There's enough negative about you for somebody to not rank you as a passive or a promoter. Yeah. And your score is the percentage of people that rank you nine or 10 or as a promoter minus the percentage of people that rank you as a detractor, six or lower. Okay. Theoretically. If your score is zero, it means the same percentage rated you promoter and detractor, right? Yeah. And in general, the scoring is zero to 30 means you're doing okay. You have a positive promoter score. 30 to 50 means you're pretty good. 50 to 70 means you're really good. And 70 above means you're probably world-class. And PCCQ is just a way for us to ask both our members to rate us and our staff to rate us mm. as employers. Mm -hmm. And we utilize it every day. Instead of, instead of like sending out a bunch of these to the members at once, I just send three randomly to members every day. And this lets us measure how well we're doing in the eyes of our members and our staff. And I would argue that, you know, staff is an internal customer, member is an external customer. Right, for sure. And I, if somebody today, if I retired tomorrow and somebody said, what are you the most proud of? I'd be hard pressed to say something that isn't tied to our growth in our promoter scores for both members and staff. We, in 2018, when we did our original net promoter, mm -hmm. we were an eight our staff, which is not really very good. Um, our net promoter scores with our staff has gotten as high as 70. Wow. Um, the, last, the last one that we did was 66. So we've we've improved by 800% in terms of how our staff views working at the club. I'm so interested in this. Let me just ask a question. About, so you're sending out three emails a day. And so, and is it just, is, is it a one question email? How are we doing? Or sort of what's, what's in the email? Is it as simple as that? So if you got my email, it, it would say, hey, Larry, based on your experience at the cricket club, would you would you um, recommend us to your friends or family? Ten would be absolutely. One would be no way. That's okay. the first question. Second question is why? Because and the why is there so that if somebody wants to answer it, you're getting some good feedback. Maybe you get a good idea that you can implement. Right. Right. But some people don't even answer the why. They just rate it and Go onward on. and upward. So it's super easy. And um, and so and how many it, emails are you sending out to accumulate a score? Because you're only doing three a day. So how many do you need to, to sort of say, okay, let's tally it up. So I, I've been doing it since 2018. And so I have at this point, I mean, I send three a day during the golf season, which is roughly 200 days long, which means I send about, I'm not there seven days. So I'm, I'm there basically roughly there's 160 days where I send it. If I send three, that means I'm going to get 480 emails out. And generally every year I get about 300 replies. So at this point, I've got 
close to 1,200 or 1,500 responses. Now, there's different ways to do it. I measured on an Excel spreadsheet, so I can I have it by date, so I can basically figure out what's my score, um, you know, in a certain time frame. But I, I'll share one other thing with you that I do yes. that I think is important. Yeah. Okay, and that is, I take all of the feedback that I get every other month, all the comments, all the scores. I take the summary. I email it to the executive committee, the golf committee, and to my staff unfiltered. Wow. If somebody says Jim Smith is a jackass, they're going to see it. Wow. Okay. And the reason why I do that is because I know that the majority of the feedback is positive. Unfortunately, when you're in the customer service business, oftentimes all you remember is the negative. Right. So when I send this out to people, it's reinforcing for leadership and for our team that, hey, folks notice and appreciate what you do. Look at the ratings they're giving you. And it makes them feel like, all right, what I'm doing is worthwhile. And when you're completely transparent and completely honest and you don't sugarcoat it and you don't whitewash it and you're not afraid to put something in there that somebody says negative about me or somebody else, people trust you more. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's, the, key to the, that's the key to the relationship, in my opinion, is trust. Absolutely. I love it. That's awesome. Um, uh, I, I, I hadn't been familiar with this net promoter thing till I saw it in, in preparing for this. That's awesome. I love it. Um, let me, um, uh, it, it, and just the way you describe that, you know, kind of testifies to, you know, why you've been so successful. I, that's terrific. Um, let me sort of, um, kind of round it out and, and kind of get you out of here on this. And this is, it's a more general point, um, but um, and we've been kind of touching a little bit about this, but kind of for people who are in that 22 to 25 range starting out and, and being purple um, and and who want to become a golf pro. I mean, there's been a lot of chatter about this topic lately. I'm sure you saw the Golf Digest article, you know, probably uh, last spring or last year at some point that kind of painted a... Um, kind of a, unfortunately, kind of a somewhat dark picture, I think, of the uh, profession, the club pro profession. Um, and I'm sort of curious, kind of maybe two parts to this, kind of what you, what your reaction was to that and kind of, you know, and, and what advice you would give to someone um, in terms of, you know, how to succeed and how to be purple um, in, in your profession. Um, well, in response to the, to the article, you know, clearly, we've been struggling with, with a shortage right in the industry a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that that is starting to turn. And I would, I would, I would um, espouse or, or ponder to say that the issues that we're dealing with today were not made yesterday. They are from decisions that were made 10 and 20 years ago. Right. Um, that the PGA expanded dramatically um, the, the standards to become a PGA member were lowered to, to grow the organization. And what ended up happening was there was an oversupply of professionals and therefore clubs could keep compensation down knowing that they'd be able to fill spots. Right. And right. that, that depression of compensation and the long hours associated with being in the business slowly started to, um, erode the interest in the business. Somebody would hear that and go, I, I don't want to do that. Um, now what's happened is COVID, the pandemic, inflation, these things have started to force clubs to wake up to the reality mm -hmm. that 
they need to pay people. They need to, let me rephrase that. They need to allocate more money towards staff because staff happiness is going to be a function of two things. One is, are they making enough money in their eyes to justify what they do? Or are they working less to have the work-life balance that they want? Well, to work less, you have to have more people either way. And this is right. a long-winded answer in, no, this to, to get good. to the point, yeah. which is, I think that the best thing about the inflationary period that we're going through is that wage inflation is one of the, the biggest drivers of that. And the people who are benefiting from that wage inflation are the people that should have been benefiting for all these years. It goes back to the frontline employee thing. Right. Right. So now these jobs are starting to earn more money. More clubs are waking up to the work-life balance. So I would say to somebody who who is interested in the business as a young person, you're getting in at a point where the business is going to be on an upswing as an employee. Employees are going to enjoy more leverage, more compensation, more balance because it's taken sort of this shock to the system to wake up many clubs to the realities of the way it's been. So I think for, for young folks, um, the future is bright as it relates to the golf industry. Um, I do think that while it's bright, it can only be brighter if you distinguish yourself in some way. You know, the guy who's going to replace Brendan Walsh when he decides to retire at the country club figured out how to be purple 20 years ago, not yesterday. Right, right, right. right. Because the country club's not going to hire somebody who's <laughs> mediocre. Uh, so, so whether, you know, you're 20 or 25, and even if you're 30 or 35, it's never too late to be purple. So you have to, you have to distinguish yourself. And, and you asked me, like, how do you do that? And I think there's the, the two best ways in the business, in my opinion. The first is work at the best clubs for, or for the best guys. And oftentimes that's one and the same. Right. Because, and again, I'm going to use your, if, if two resumes cross my desk for a job and one of them says Harvard and Stanford and the other one says Washington State and Oregon State, who's getting the call? No, I hear like you. it or not, right? It doesn't it doesn't make the person from Harvard and Stanford better? It's just the perception is they're purpler, right? right. So right. that's how golf professionals can make their resumes purple. When their resume says, "I did internships at Marion and Congressional and Ridgewood and the Country Club," they're going to be purple. That's one way. The second way is, and the way that the path that I took is, I'm not a pedigreed guy. I never worked at any of the top 100 clubs. But what I did was I got a, a head pro job when I was 23. Right. I, and, I, and I knew that if I made the most of it, it would open doors for me. And, and ultimately that's what happened. So the second way to make yourself purple, in my opinion, is to get as much responsibility as you can as quickly as you can. I just had a guy call me the other day who was saying, I've got four job openings in front of me. I've got three assistance jobs and a head pro job. The three clubs that he was offering me as an assistant, none of them you would describe as making you purple. So I was like, it's not even a decision, dude. Take the head pro job, make something of it. Right. Because the next time you send something out, that's going to be what makes you purple. Right, right. That's all great advice. I love it. That all makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, Jim, I really appreciate you. This has been great talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time um uh love 
your passion and 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 not surprised all the great success you've had and um uh it's been fun chatting with you and um uh again thank you so much for the time really terrific um thanks for doing this and coming on the show thank thank you i'm i'm flattered that you thought of me and and it was a fun hour and i hope i get to see you on the golf course here at cricket one of these days i would love it that would be great thanks